Assalamu alaikum. What's going on, guys? How much are you, man? What's happening? Mokes, you're not at work today, huh? You're slacking off. Come on, you're on mute. Why do you have a niqab on, a virtual niqab on, Usman? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. But... You were blocked off earlier when you were talking. You were blacked out. Oh, okay. like, oh, why are you blocked out? Is that your company's uh, background, your official official Cronus help? Yeah, yeah, one of the backgrounds, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, all you guys have these interesting backgrounds. It's like, damn, where do you guys get these? But then I'm like, I don't, I haven't been part of the Zoom workforce, <laughs> you know? I'm one of those in-person guys. We missed you guys yesterday at the, I know, I think remember you said you were working or something. Yeah. yeah bro zishan man oh my god dude frick he kept he he dm me he blew up my dms he's like why aren't they coming what's wrong let's find out i'm like oh my god zishan bro please leave me alone it was it was really good <laughs> he was like i need the reason i need the reasons why the north side guys aren't coming and i'm like zishan it's been 10 years bro like chill bro relax <laughs> you can't just like start it up again that's my yeah, I, I it looked cool, man. It looked good, mashallah, from the pictures and stuff. You still at uh, Alaska? The Alaska. Oh Island? yeah. Mm -hmm. Virgin. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, right. No, it's March. Alaska. Uh, yeah, Alaska bottom. Oh, okay, okay, nice. Hey, assalamualaikum. Thanks, Sam. Raheem, the dream. How are you guys? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. The name of Dean. Who is that? Thanks, uh, he was here. I think you were here last time, right? The from Northside originally. Uh, yeah, I was. I just sent a when was that for a message? So so if I yeah, it was really good. Uh, it was um, it was like so many generations. Like I found by being the oldest uh, of like you know the OGs. Of YM, uh, talking about the YM alumni thing yesterday, which uh, Raheem was there, but I think uh, for the rest of you guys, it's, it's a good update. And then we had like Salman by Mahmoud by Junaid, like Wasa by you know, all, everybody from that generation. And then, um, like Arif Abdul, Zishan, and then um, Zaki, Zaki, and uh, I don't know who else was there from that generation, and then our generation of guys as well um eric was there it was really cool a lot of people wanted to meet eric like he's like a mint kind of you know the white <laughs> unicorn um and then uh maz as well that was uh that was because his daughter's birthday party yesterday as well um and so but he came for most of it alhamdulillah which was really good a lot of people wanted to meet maz as well um and then what else yeah i mean um and then the younger generation of course abdullah basit and um everybody from his time when he was SR coordinator, there was a bunch of people there. And then obviously the current leadership as well, like Zaid Khan, he's the current SR coordinator. 
um, Shayan Sheikh, who's our national shura, a bunch of people. So it was it was a really good um, session. They basically gave an SR update what they're doing um, in terms of how the neighborhoods are. The existing neighborhoods are doing doing very well, mashallah. But um, and then there's some expansion efforts as well. Peoria, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, where our contact with Warsi is is very involved there. But uh, inshallah, we're going to try to have another one, and um, we'll try to plan the date ahead of time so that all of you guys can come as well. Because I know um, we're trying to do more on the local, like whatever neighbor that's closest to us, trying to get involved at least on a quarterly basis, and along with some other things. So there's definitely a lot that we can all um, contribute towards. Like it doesn't have to be like being a study circle, what up, be or something like that. Sometimes they just have questions. Like there's a kid planning one of the one of the leaders, current leaders. He's planning like the retreat and he just has questions about like logistical stuff how he should handle certain things and um, sometimes just having alumni is helpful because the current YM leadership like they can obviously support that but their bandwidth is limited uh, to a certain extent as well so um, those small areas where you can have those just be present be available uh, I think can help a lot there but they were they were so happy uh, with everybody and just meeting and man there were so many small conversations there was like I was like speed dating I was going around different different tables <laughs> and different circles trying to see what people are talking about and Man, it was so interesting. It was, it was really cool. Yeah, I, I did text out Umar Zafar, so we'll see what he says. But he hasn't seen my message yet. So, um, so yeah, I was just talking about yesterday's thing. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people were excited to meet Faisal Mumtaz as well. I don't know about that, but uh, it, there was... um. There was a lot of uh, like a lot of new like a lot of people I, I I'm current leadership that I don't know that well, and um, just seeing them give updates and just talking about what they're doing, I was actually very impressed. Like they're actually really mature and uh, I don't know they're like strategic in their thinking. Uh, obviously they're young and stuff, but like I just feel like I don't know they're so mature, and so uh, like Brian has like really really good leaders right now, in my opinion. Alhamdulillah, it's great to hear. That was really nice. Erfan uh, Bhai spoke for a little bit as well, very briefly. Uh, but just uh, seeing him, like a, a lot of people actually in the current leadership, I, I know like at least when we were in YM, um, I think Northside guys had a better connection with Erfan Bhai than at least the Westside guys. And we've heard of Erfan Bhai, you know, we've seen him here and there. We didn't really like connect with him. But the current current leaders, they, they've talked to him over the past two years, like many times on the phone, but they never met him. And so like even the SR coordinator, they're like, oh, they finally met him face to face yesterday for the first time since he moved back to Chicago now. But they've been in touch with the front by for like years, apparently, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I don't think I've ever like actually had a conversation with him, like in person. We had a um, Friday hangout, I think. Uh, actually, um, or like kind of Friday hangout that we have, like usually at the Ekna Center or Arps House or something like that. Uh, he gave like the halakha this week. Um, which was pretty cool, yeah. So I never really kind of heard him speak and stuff, or at least have like a deeper conversation. It was pretty right. interesting. Yeah, I was really surprised, man. Like a lot of people, you know, praise him. The only communication I had prior was, you know, he's always blowing up the YM chat, right? <laughs> Ripping up guys. <laughs> so I had this image of him. And then Friday, dude, mashallah, man. Now I know why he's a treasure, dude. Yeah. This dude, he's like, what, close to 15. He's still like able to relate to kids in high school, man. It's crazy. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that's how I remember him too. Just busting people's chops in the group chat, just going hard. Yeah. <laughs> so funny, man. Completely different personality in person, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's because uh, you guys haven't known him that well. Wait, wait till he starts busting your chops in real life. That's when he gets. Warren was over. Said he's he's uh, he just finished praying. Uh, I think he forgot, so he's gonna be he's gonna be joining soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. I don't remember that website we used last time. You're right. Oh. Is that whatever? Oh, nice. What else? What's new with you guys? Work, family, recession. <laughs> same old, same old. You know, just yeah. grinding out here. Okay. What about you? Same, yeah. Nothing new on my end. Yeah, work is work. Yeah. You're at Mark, you're uh, Microsoft now, right? Yeah, alhamdulillah. Yeah. I started, uh, two weeks ago, I believe. Nice, Masha, man. I'm broke. Okay. Yeah, thank that was you. probably a tough interview, huh? Yeah. Um, I lucked out because the way they do their interview is just pretty much one day of just four back to back to back. So I stressed out about it just that, you know, one small period of time rather than nice. waiting two weeks and three weeks for a response and stuff. So alhamdulillah, was, it was pretty good. Nice. Um, yeah, it's a whole new org that they built out. So there's no documentation, nothing. It's pretty exciting to just be a part of that. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry about that. I raced home from a class and then did Maghrib and then I was sitting to myself. Hmm. Forgot why I raced home. <laughs> and so um, this is uh, your preparation for old age. And <laughs> Yeah. No worries. Is that far? What ex? Let me uh pull up the screen for the screen share. Screen shareification. Let's see. I should probably pull this one up. All right. And do you see the the one note? Yep. All right. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'm finishing the setup. Any questions about anything at all? Nothing at all. All right. Let me give my computer full brain power and then okay. And there was a mention of like Athenians or something like that. And I was wondering if we we're supposed to know like who they are or why they're being mentioned. I mean, for our purposes, it's not that important, but the short version is basically this is 
think of Athens as the the city state where they belong to. And okay. so you all know Sparta. This is Sparta, right? And so in the way today the world is nation states, back then it was empires and city states. And until essentially the modern period, by modern period, I'm saying the last 150 years, the whole world was empires and city states. And even discussion, discourse about, wait, that's not what you want. Uh, even discourse about uh, uh, Islamic State only goes back about 150 years. Khilafah is different, but Islamic State discourse is about as old as um, discourse about a Jewish state because the now we have these newly forming uh, nation states, youth fro. <laughs> and that is often the criticism that people give uh, about against the Islamic State movement that, look, this has only been around for 150 years. The Khilafah discourse, of course, has been around for 1,400 years. Uh, and so one of the uh, age-old questions is, what would be the form of the utopian Muslim polity? And so is it a city-state? Uh, while I'm pulling this up, what would you all say... Uh, uh, Medina was. Was it a city-state? Was it a nation-state? What is an empire? What do you all think? Probably a city-state. So, uh, any other thoughts? No other thoughts. Think of it as uh, probably a city-state uh, prior to the uh, conquest of Mecca. And because it comes down to how much control do they have. Uh, with the conquest of Mecca, now you had Mecca and Medina, and then after that, the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. And then it becomes more akin to what we would call a nation state. Yeah. We have the we have the link to Euthyphro in our chat. If you want to just click on that, uh, can you? Oh, there it is. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And so, so on that note, the basic point being that, um, ooh, triple. You know, I could do this thing, these things. All right, y'all see my screen with uh, youth fro and then that. Yeah. And so then uh, 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 under Omar, uh, the, the polity becomes essentially an empire, right? Under Abu Bakr, the whole uh, everything shrunk because people were refusing to pay zakat. You had the Ridda Wars. He reclaims everything. And then under Amr, you have all kinds of expansion taking place. And so these are all different types of polities. Okay, so <clears throat> where did we leave off? I think if I remember correctly, uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, I think uh, Euthyphro was about to talk about his father, correct? Or like you know, Socrates had just spoken uh, about why he's in trouble. And we have not yet seen why Euthyphro is in court. And so on yes. this edition, okay, and I think right here, and what is your suit, Euthyphro? Are you the pursuer or the defendant? So let's see. Uh, how about uh, Ali? Why don't you be Socrates? And uh, Eamon, why don't you be Euthyphro? And Palestine, we don't have Euthyphro. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> Uh, one second, let me pull it up here. 
We are at, where are we at again? It's, and what is your suit, Euthyphro? Yes, yes, right here. Yeah, like what suit is he wearing and stuff? <laughs> I'm very junior uh, shit. Found my place. Very good. All right. Begin. <clears throat> and what is your suit, Euthyphro? Are you the pursuer or the defendant? I am the pursuer. Of whom? You, you <coughs> will think uh, me mad when I tell you. Why? Has the fugitive wings? Nay, he is not very volatile at this time of life. Who is he? My father. Oh, snap. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Your father, my good man? Yes. And of what is he accused? Of murder, Socrates. Okay, so let's stop right here. When uh, Socrates says, okay, why are you here? He says, I'm, I'm the one who's filed a lawsuit. Against whom? You think I'm, you're going to think I'm mad? Essentially, what is he saying? Why? Are you suing one of the gods? Okay. And no, but I'm suing someone who's kind of uh, unable to do anything, which is I'm accusing my father of murder. Okay. All right. And so... So Socrates is is basically yelling, Ya Latif. Okay. So <laughs> go for it. By the powers, Euthyphro, how little does the common herd know of the nature of right and truth? A man must be an extraordinary man and have great strides in wisdom before he could have seen his way to bring such an acting. Okay, so he's saying a lot in this sentence. First, what do you all think about this? How little does the common herd know of the nature of right and truth? What are your thoughts? Would you agree, disagree? And why or why not? Does the common person know right from wrong? First, argue, yes, they do. How would you argue that? I think generally speaking, when people see or hear something that is... Uh, uh, egregious or uh, unethical uh, they can recognize that or object to it okay and so why is that just the is that just the the general notion in society or why is it that um the commoner would feel this way what do y'all think because we're getting essentially into the question of culture versus fitra well <clears throat> I think in, it, people will develop a sense of what they think is right or wrong, okay. right? But I guess what it, it's subjective, right? So um, I think uh, maybe Socrates' definition of what right and wrong is is he he considers it to be ex what like what is right and what is wrong versus what the common man considered what's right and what's wrong okay any sense okay uh is there are there things that we would expect universally every society that we're in more or less agrees upon what do y'all think? think i think so if yeah. so what would some of those things be i mean there's going to be exceptions for everything but what would be common things that society would consider to be yeses like you should do this or no's you should not do this like stealing okay um, and this is a question for everybody. 
uh, lying, cheating, mm-hmm. um, insulting, yeah. bad mouthing. Right. And so, commonly, in terms of behaviors, there's an innate notion of personal rights. Yeah, the right not to be murdered, the right not to be lied to, the right not to be insulted, the right not to be stolen from. And then, not as often in our modern era, there's also innate notions of personal responsibilities. I think this was normal for most of the world until the modern era, where the conversation shifted from responsibilities to rights. And this is just me, I'm throwing this out as a hypothetical. Uh, if we were to speak of responsibilities, what would be included in that? Uh, responsibilities to your family, to uh-huh. your like tribe and uh-huh. you know the larger rings as it were, as they go up. Yeah, exactly. So you have responsibilities to your family, which could be either providing, protecting, nurturing, educating, And then from there uh, to your greater tribe, and your tribe might be what we would call a tribe, or it could be your community, your neighborhood. And then from there, you know, as as Omar mentioned, these uh, uh, different rings and such. And so uh, that is essentially what is being taught. But the bigger question is action. This is going to be the repeated theme uh, that we bring up throughout the text. Uh, I do agree that I think innately, uh, whether we use the Fitzroy argument or not, people know innately what's right or wrong. That transcends cultures. Uh, the question of actually standing up for action, uh, I think, really, really varies. In the nation-state model, uh action people get fundamentally disempowered and they don't realize it and a way to think about this is that in the nation state the notion is that the motherland the fatherland is handling everything your job is to serve not to rebel but just about everything's being handled education is being handled by the public school system okay security is being handled by the police And then you have to work so that you have food, but most states are welfare states. America was a welfare state until Bill Clinton. Uh, and, and then Bill Clinton started shifting America away from being a welfare state. He, in that he launched these welfare to work programs where before that, if you were earning under a certain amount of income, it was not that difficult for you to still get a home, to still have food on the table. We still have like food stamp programs, but now it's much harder to get them. Uh, especially if you can't confirm that you're working. But the idea of the modern nation state is very often that it's taking care of everything for you. you And your job is to be a good citizen. So action, I think, is something that is missing. And this is something we're also going to see a lot here. Uh, Now, if we use the Fitra argument, from a Fitra perspective, do people innately know right and wrong? What do you all think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think at least in a loose sense, not akin to what I've written up here, that people innately know that there's boundaries you're not supposed to cross. 
And that fitzerah can get corrupted or buried, or it can be repurified. Uh, but part of this is also uh, where do different cultures really play out? They play out in terms of the particulars, right? So is it okay to lie, you know, if it'll save somebody's life? Is it okay to lie if it'll prevent somebody's feelings from getting hurt? Uh, there you'll find different schools of ethics and such. Now he said, a man must be an extraordinary man and have made great strides in wisdom before he could have seen his way to bring such an action. So to bring yourself to the point that you would actually sue your dad, yeah, you had to go through a lot of deliberation. Yeah, this is not something for an ordinary person to do, especially in their era. Because in their era, what was it that distinguished someone from being a citizen to a non-citizen? You have to be a landowner, and this is basically something that's handed down from families. So think it's not that different I mean, it is different, but not that different from the tribal structure at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where if the tribal head became Muslim, the entire population became Muslim. If the tribal head is fighting the Prophet, peace be upon him, the entire tribe is fighting the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so this is essentially why it, part of the reason in the past six months or the last six months of the Prophet's life, everybody became Muslim really fast. And as quickly after he died, everybody said, we're not paying zakat anymore. Right? The tribal the tribal heads were choosing this. Even think about the selection of Abu Bakr. How was Abu Bakr selected as the as the uh, successor to the Prophet peace be upon him? How do they do it? There is the common story and then the actual story. What is either of them? Anyone? Um, wasn't he? Uh not like nominated in a sense and then there was some friction between the ansar they wanted like a different leader mm -hmm. and then eventually they compromised so yeah so the short version is that the ansar first the question was should we even be one ummah right now at the prophet's death and the ansar are saying sad should be the head and then Omar is like well no one's going to follow anan qurashi right because everyone had just become muslim so, and then they're all turning to him. And then he said, I can't be the I can't be the leader as long as Abu Bakr's here. So they turned to Abu Bakr. But who is everybody? Everybody is just the nobles of these former tribes. So we're talking about a couple dozen people at the most who are making this decision. The way we commonly teach it is that you know the whole of the community got together and make this, this decision. That's not how it happened. That's not even practical to consider. We're literally saying, you know, a couple dozen people at most got together and made this decision. The nobles, the elite, uh, decided who would be the, the Khalifa. But the point being that in that time, uh, the father uh, was a person of great stature, and the head of the tribe was essentially the father of the whole tribe, was the sheikh of the whole tribe. So also in this time, if you're making, you know, any public statement against your father, then that's uh, a horrendously huge accusation. Okay, uh, let's continue. Youth Fro. Let's see here. Okay, indeed, Socrates, he must. I suppose the man whom your father murdered was one of your relatives. Clearly he was. Or if he had been a stranger, you would never have thought of prosecuting him. Uh, oh, okay. I am amused, uh, Socrates, at you're making a distinction between one who is a relation and one who is not 
a relation. For surely the pollution is the same in either case. If you knowingly associate with the murderer when you might ought to clear uh, yourself and him by proceeding against him. The real question is whether the murdered man has uh, been uh, justly slain. Uh, if justly, then your duty is to let the ma- let the matter alone. But if unjustly, then even if the murderer lives under the same roof with you and eats in the same table, uh, proceed against him. Now, the man who is dead was a poor dependent of mine who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm uh, on our farm in next in Naxos. And one day in the fit of uh, drunken passion, he got into a, a quarrel with uh, one of our domestic servants and slew him. My father bound him and, hand and foot and threw him into a ditch and then sent, the, and then sent to Athens to ask for a uh, diviner uh, what uh, he should do with him. Uh, meanwhile, he never attended to him and uh, took no care about him, for he regarded him as a murderer and thought that no great harm would uh, be done even if he did die. Now, this was, this was just what happened, for such was the effect of uh, cold and hunger and uh, chains upon him that before the messenger returned from the diviner, uh, he was dead. And my father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. They say that he did not kill him and that if he did, a dead man uh, was from a murderer and I ought not to take any notice for that a son uh, is impious who prosecutes a father which shows Socrates how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety okay so very good this is going to be the central question you know what is piety what is impiety we'll get to that in a second uh why would Socrates suggest okay the guy you killed is probably a relative because the people of status are the landowners and the tribe members. The laborers, the slaves, are, generally speaking, not considered to have any status. I think we all understand that in terms of the history of the United States, even modern United States, that, uh, that <clears throat> basically you have the landowners who are the citizens and then you have everybody else who have no rights. And so Socrates is throwing this out. All right, if you're suing your father for killing... He must have killed a family member. It was probably a domestic dispute, probably for power. Okay. And Euthyphro is saying, no, nope. you know, uh, that's, uh, uh, I'm amused that you would think I am so petty. Okay. Uh, and who is a relation and who is a not? Okay. The pollution is the same in either case, right? It's a murder is a murder is a murder. So based on that so far, I think we would all agree with Euthyphro, right? Okay. If you knowingly associate with the murderer when you ought to clear yourself and him by proceeding against him, the real question is whether the murdered man had been justly slain. I think even that you and I would agree with. Okay. How would we determine if someone has been justly slain? Does the Quran give us prescriptions, doesn't it? You know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that type of thing. Are you talking Islamically or just in general? Uh, Islam in Chicago, 2022. I mean, you'd have to go to court, right? Yeah. Right. And so one of the points 
Oh, uh, let me get back to the status of relations. Well, actually, we did talk about this. Hold on. Uh, landowners. Citizens. Versus laborers. Okay. So this goes back to a question we raised before. Um, adjudication adjudication some of you somebody can check to see if I'm spelling this correctly is that how you spell adjudication Omer is our official yeah okay <clears throat> so what we're basically saying is you got to have a court system now the Quran gives prescriptions right stealing cut off their hand why can I not use that argument the quran says very clearly cut off their hand or you know to the adulterer it's even more categorical don't even let your compassion for them prevent you from fulfilling allah's command and the likewise for murder why can't we just immediately just decide we're going to start doing it uh, we? well the first the first thing would be that we're not qualified Okay, and what's the basis of qualification? Uh, you need to be a Qadi to make those judgments. Okay, so what if I push back and say the ayah doesn't say anything like that? Uh, then we, I guess you could push back and say, well, the ayah, the Quran isn't our only source text, right? Okay. Or where we're gaining, where we get our, uh, what is it, uh, our usul from. Okay. Okay, and so... Are there hadith that say you have to be a qadi to do the education? Uh, I Aha, question mark. Hadith. We don't know. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. Mm. Your thoughts? What is preventing me? What from, I think. Uh, sorry, I can say. Oh, look, I am professor of Islam. I am chaplain of Muslim. You know, you steal, hand cut off. Yeah, none. What are you saying? Um, I think the question we sh we would ask is, who is it a command to? Is it a command to the individual, okay. or is it a command to the greater community? Yeah. Because um, I think uh, those have different implications in terms of what you take into your own hands, right? So, like the command to pray is directly for every individual, but okay. If it's a command for the community, then you need other things in place, along with like a consensus, um, okay. a system to do these things and to implement them. Okay. So what you if, can't really do those things on your own, right? Okay. What if I say all these things are are escapes that we use uh, to face the reality that these are commands from Allah? And this is not just I mean, you, for everybody. Any thoughts? Uh, we could look at the example of the prophet and his companions. Like they went to the knowledgeable amongst them to judge, right? Like mm -hmm. that's that's what we see from their stories. So mm -hmm. it kind of behooves us to follow the same way. Okay. So doesn't it seem that, uh, you know, the prophet was implementing these commands immediately, but he was the prophet, um, you know, Seems to me like that doesn't answer the, the issue either. No.
even uh, even outside of the Prophet Sallallahu right, where he wasn't accessible or he he wasn't, you know, after he had passed away, you know, uh, we see that historically people went to people who were like, uh, what is it? What's the word? Um, you know, they were well-versed in these realms to pass judgments or to seek that that appropriate knowledge, as it were. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just like, hey, um, you know, I, I read this in the Quran. You committed X and X crime. I'm going to chop your hand off. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm missing this last point that you made. Uh, uh, may I ask you to rephrase it? So I guess you... Well, I guess what I'm saying is even after the Prophet passed away or when he wasn't available, you see historically that, um, you know, the knowledgeable amongst the Sahaba are consulted in order to make these decisions or make these types of decisions where mm-hmm. people who felt like they weren't um, capable to make those decisions, they would go to, say, someone like Abdullah bin Masood or whomever else okay. or Ali one, and then those decisions would be made. So I guess what I'm saying is we have a historical precedent of this happening in our community where the knowledgeable are consulted Mm -hmm. in order to make decisions like this. I would suggest that they're being consulted in a social framework where their opinions have coercive power. Okay. And what I mean by this is that the court system, and this is a point that we touched on way, I think it was in our first session, that uh, you can't really do very much adjudication in our community because there's no coercive power. So even if the ayah doesn't say you need a qadi, even if we can't find a hadith that says you have to uh, uh, have a qadi and such, when we look at the example of the Sahaba, uh, we don't see... Uh, until about 30 years later, we don't see people from the earliest generations taking the law into their own hands. That they're still following the coercive authority. See what I'm saying? So going from the Prophet, peace be upon him, to Abu Bakr, to Omar, and then it's under Uthman that things start getting shaky. Uh, uh, But that is, is more of the younger crowd that is sort of raising the exact same questions that I'm raising. And and so do you see what I'm saying? That the court is the court if it has coercive power. So let's reframe it. Hypothetically, let's say, you know, um, Omar accuses Adnan of stealing his car. And we yank both Adnan and Omar into a court and both of them share their testimony. And Adnan even confesses, right? I stole his car. Uh, I admit to nothing. Okay. <laughs> uh, then let's say we have, we have camera footage. We have witness. Yeah, so let's say Adnan is refusing to, to confirm. We have camera footage. We have all these old, out-of-date YM guys that have watched it happen right before their eyes, right? And they're all saying, we all watched Adnan not just steal Omer's car. He gloated about it, right? We even have Adnan's social media, like he's taking a B-real photo, and you can see him, you know, with, uh, you know, Omer's car behind him. Another video, he's literally stealing. Let's say it's an abundance of evidence, Good. 
And I've taken on the de facto role of being the judge. And I say, yeah, a non-guilty. Okay. And so this is all taking place, you know, let's say in Lincolnwood. And, and I announced we have to cut off his hand. Amen's like in Palestine, we don't have hands. And so he cuts off his hand, okay, because that's the ruling. Then what happens? Practically speaking, what happens? Then I get arrested you, for cutting you, off his hand. Yeah, exactly. Amen right? <laughs> goes to jail. Amen <laughs> goes to jail. I go to jail. And we all go to jail, right? Because we don't have any course of power here. We're basically vigilantes. And at best, people will turn us into mythologies and say, look, they're going to jail for implementing Islam. They're the real Muslims and such, right? <laughs> that creates that whole theology where we celebrate people you know, because they've gone to jail. And so the point here is just speaking from a purely pragmatic perspective, at most, you're going to get away with one or two implementations of, you know, Islamic punitive law. So the point is that it's going to be an exercise in failure before even getting into Islamic arguments for why you should or should not do it. What, do you mean uh, an exercise in failure in our context or in a sort of broader context that like you mean like there because i you could argue there are places where that course of power does exist yeah i'm speaking of chicago 2022 oh, okay yeah. so just to our context yeah i mean okay. theoretically we could we could kidnap adnan and omar and fly them into afghanistan uh there we go that's what yeah. i wanted and even there they might say well bro you're not a citizen here you know we can't really help you right so what I'm saying is that even before before getting to Islamic arguments, just from a pragmatic perspective, what can you actually implement? And in terms of anything that requires any sort of coercion, unless it fits within the established law, you can't really do anything. You know, neither good nor bad, that's a different issue. You know? And so, so that which is what Euthyphro is doing, he's following the system of law. You know? And he's actually accusing his father of not following the system of law. So if justly, then your duty is to let the matter alone. But if unjustly, then even if the murderer lives under the same roof with you and eats at the same table, proceed against him. So first, his point is that, look, a murderer is a murderer. Okay. Now, the man who was dead is a poor dependent of mine who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm in Naxos. I mean, for our purposes, Naxos is irrelevant. We'll just say Skokie. And one day in a fit uh, of drunken passion, he got into a quarrel with one of our domestic servants and slew him, right? So what's taking place? We got these two servants. One's a laborer in the field. One's a servant inside the house. They got to fight and the laborer killed him. Okay. And maybe just because he was too strong. Okay. My father then bound him hand and foot and threw him into a ditch. In that moment, what would Euthyphro have done? What do you think? He would have sued the field laborer for murder? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? You would have said, okay, it's a murder, and so I'm going to go to court and you know file a lawsuit against you for committing a murder. And so problem number one from Euthyphro's perspective is that his father sort of exercised his privilege to above the law ties him up throws him in a ditch 
Mishnah. And then while he sends, while the guy's in a ditch, he goes to like a, uh, we call him a kahin, you know, uh, almost like an apostle. So think of like even at the time of the prophet, or no, before the time of the prophet, think of Abdul Muttalib. He makes a vow, you know, in, in gratitude to Allah. If you show me Zamzam, I'm going to sacrifice one of my sons. Right? Y'all remember the story? And then, and so uh, he's going to sacrifice Abdullah and everyone, his youngest son, and everyone's like, no, no, you can't do this. So go to one of these enchantresses who sit in their in their little temples and ask them what to do. And then the enchantress says, okay, draw straws. Every time it comes uh, in favor of Abdullah, uh, make it 10 camels versus slaughtering Abdullah. If it comes up to Abdullah, Abdullah, add another 10 and add another 10 until it keeps coming to the camels. And then finally comes to the camels, but Abdul Muttalib's like, no, one time's not enough. It's going to have to go like three times or 10 times. And then finally, bam, 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 it's camels. And so he slaughters something like 100 camels to fulfill his vow. But the point is that that's what you had in that polytheist society. You had numerous gods, and then you had these, these other apostle priests type things that were women or men. And and they would often be turned to for advice. What should he do with him? Okay. Meanwhile, the guy's in the ditch, and and no one's doing anything for him, and so the guy dies. Okay. So based on that, would you say that his dad is a murderer? What do you think? He was, his dad was also the landowner, correct? So the dad is the landowner. The dad is the one who ties him up and dumps him into a ditch and then leaves to find out what to do with him. And in the, in the meantime, the guy in the ditch dies. For sure. 100% murder? murder. Yeah. What do y'all think? Uh, yeah, I, I think he's a murderer because he kind of he kind of became a vigilante, right? He took the law into his own hands. Mm-hmm. And um, even though he did do the whole divining thing, like up until there's a judgment made, he needs to, you know, take care of his charge, as it were, and he didn't. Okay. Any other thoughts? Anyone want to argue he's not a murderer? I mean, couldn't you argue that he uh, he's guilty of negligence? I mean, yeah, he's guilty would, of something, but no. This I would be know. more like like negligence, uh, negligent or re- reckless homicide. Yeah. Right? So his intent does not seem to have been murder. His intent mm-hmm. seemed to have been to punish him. But isn't reckless homicide just another way to say murder? So essentially, yes, murder. It's like a uh, it's like a legal way. Like like you can go about how he murdered him, right? What his yeah. intentions were, the way he was murdered. Yeah. Uh, and so go ahead. Sorry. That was it. That's my yeah. point. The difference would basically be in the nature of the punishment. Right. Okay. So it's one thing yeah. if he puts him there with the intention for him to die, <clears throat> or it's he's putting him there almost like as a form of keeping him in prison and then they forget about him. Right. And so let's change it. Let's say he put him into prison and then went to find out uh, what to do with him. But while in prison, because of lack of food, lack of attention, he died. Does that change the story at all? What do y'all think? Yeah, because he's not responsible for the prison, right? He's not, the prison kind of takes takes custody of the, the guy if he takes him to prison. But okay, um, when he chained him up and put him in that well or wherever, uh, or a ditch, 
like he's directly responsible for that dude's uh, well-being, you know, despite him being a murderer. So before any sort of due process takes place, if he dies, it's on him. Mm -hmm. So you'd say then it's the same thing if he locked him up in a room saying, okay, you kill this person. I got to find out what to do with you. I'm locking you in this room until then. And then while he's going to find out what to do, the guy dies because of lack of nourishment. Murderer still? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like the same thing, right? Yeah, I think they're all basically different variations of the same thing. So, so <clears throat> then uh, never to, uh, attended to him, never took care of him, for he regarded him as a murderer and thought no great harm would be done if he did die. What do you think about this point? Valid accusation from Euthyphro. That his father didn't think any greater harm hap would happen to him or any great harm would be done if he did die. So basically, Euthyphro is saying the father fundamentally didn't really care what happened to this kid. Seems like it. Um, because the fact that he didn't ensure to follow some kind of a, a due process and, and you know nourish him enough mm -hmm. to be able to see through some, some kind of uh, uh, judicial process. Um, okay. So, I mean, I, I think it's, I guess uh, it's a, it's a fair assumption, but um, I think I, I would want to hear for myself why he didn't decide to take care of him. Okay. So what do y'all think? Yeah, I think I would, I would have that. Um, Echo Ali, and then what you wrote as well, right? Like, a, it's very, um, your, I mean, not to, this is kind of like what he did is kind of the reverse, or, or what you, I guess you throw is how he's describing it is that, like, just the way his father sort of handled um, this guy's well being um, kind of implies he didn't care, right? Like, okay. if someone cared enough for this man to like stay alive throughout this through this whole judicial process he wouldn't have let him die like the way his father did because not only did he like lock him up he locked him up in like a really sort of cruel and um unusual way right he's he's in a ditch he's not being fed and he's chained up hand and leg so it's like you know like this man is basically an invalid okay and you know it's like there's there's better ways to deal with it essentially okay so on that note let's put ourselves in the situation of the father okay father's this landowner and he's just going about his day doing whatever and then someone runs to him and says okay these two just got in a fight and then this guy killed him and so all these people are yelling you know the 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 laborer is saying look the guy attacked me i didn't know what to do other people are like look what you did and he's trying to calm things down and he's trying to figure out what to do in that moment. And he decides, all right, let's let's lock this guy up. And and so his version of locking him up was to put him in a ditch in such a way that he can't escape. And then he's going to a preacher to find out what to do. Based on this, can we possibly infer that the father actually did care? What do y'all think? So what I'm raising, the question I'm raising is, 
is this possible? This is just Euthyphro's imp- uh, impression of his dad. Yeah, Raheem, what are you going to say? Uh, I, I think you can argue that he did care. I think okay. the only problem comes is like uh, with the nourishment part because okay. that, that obviously means that's been prolonged. I, I think even if he died nourished, but he let the authorities know, um, then that would change the whole story too. Okay. So, uh, Ali, what are you going to say? Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, another point that I was thinking about was, uh, I mean, the fact that Euthyphro can go to the court and make his lawsuit tells me that maybe his father is much older. Perhaps he's, he's he could be afraid, you know, uh, like maybe putting him in a ditch is, is, is his way of protecting himself since the guy, regardless yeah, uh you know of intent he did kill, kill somebody so so yeah, this is the point i'd like us to consider that this is euthyphro's assessment yeah okay. uh when someone is doing something how do we figure out their intentions by asking them possibly and how do we know they're telling the truth we don't don't actions are judged by intentions applies when on the day of judgment the equivalent in law one of the principles in law to this is essentially motives or intentions are dictated by their ends dictated we might even say means and ends The idea being that we can, based on what someone does and how they do it, we can infer what their intentions were. And and so I think you could read Euthyphro's uh, assessment as a slanted version, but I think we could read into it and say, now his father is actually trying to figure out what to do. Uh by going to the preacher and uh, and but in the consequence he made the wrong choice and the guy died we don't know how long he was in the ditch you know what if he's in the ditch for like 10 minutes and then he you know he was already malnourished uh i think when we see euthyphro's assessment we think he's he was in a ditch for a long time and a way that could work is maybe he had to travel a long distance to get to this uh, to get to this preacher to find out what to do. Uh, don't know, but those details are not there. And so I think Euthyphro's assessment could be right on target, or he could be completely skewing the version of the story. And that's the point I want us to consider. We don't quite know, but I don't know if that changes Euthyphro's overall stance that a murder has been committed that a murder has been committed so i'm gonna i'm filing a lawsuit against him meaning it's up to the court then to decide so this is just what was happened for such was the effect of cold and hunger and chains upon him that before the messenger returned from the diviner he was dead okay so the messenger went to the diviner and my father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. Whose side is Euthyphro on? Uh, the side of the law? Yeah. This is one of the hardest things to understand 
in terms of tribalism versus justice. That in our dean uh, for your consideration, hey, Mufezan, I just said it again. Uh, I would suggest we don't really have an issue with tribalism as long as it doesn't override justice. So however people want to organize themselves, it's all well and good. But justice must supersede everything. When you are looking through the lens of tribalism, then justice looks like a betrayal. When you're looking through the lens of justice, then tribalism looks like a betrayal of justice. And so in matters of conflict, you're going to choose one or the other. The hard part, more often, I would suggest is justice. Even if you have a whole system, because even in our society, where there is a lot of focus on justice, whether or not it's implemented well is a different question. Um, there's still a whole lot of focus on tribalism. And then, I mean, this is an issue that I face quite a bit in all the, all the cases that I worked on. But aside from all that, the point is that tribalism also is a very safe feeling. Justice is a very vulnerable state, even for the person who's pursuing it. Okay, so yeah, they are angry with me for, part, for taking the part of the murderer because that's what it looks like. It looks like a betrayal. In prosecuting my father, they say that he did not kill him and that if he did, a dead man was a murderer, so it wasn't a big loss anyway. This is also an issue that comes up in ethics. This is also the stuff of a lot of, a lot of uh, crime fiction where you'll have someone who can't, doesn't have enough evidence to pursue the criminal but they have other evidence that can get him, get the criminal sent to jail. But a murder, I ought not to take any notice for that a son is impious who prosecutes a father, which shows, Socrates, how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety. What would be the words in our tradition for piety or that which is pious? Sorry? A bear and so bid would be one, does Kia. What else? And this is something we're going to keep redefining as we go through the text to figure out what do they mean. Taqwa. I would add taqwa too as well. These are probably the big ones, especially bir and, and taqwa. Okay. How do we define, before going further, how do we define what is bir or does or taqwa? Any thoughts? Taqwa is often mentioned as having fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being aware of your relationship with Allah, like being afraid of, of um, breaking that relationship, violating, or like making yourself liable to his punishment. Okay, so one is just looking at what is the definition of the word. Oh. What else? Okay. I mean, that's essentially what you've given. How else do we figure out what these things are? What do our primary sources say? Yeah. So, uh, for example, yeah, go ahead, uh, Omar. Isn't I? I'm I'm misremembering probably, but isn't taqwa just described in our sources as like a shield of sorts? Yeah, if we get into the most minimal meaning of the word, yeah. 
mm-hmm. or we have that famous conversation and sometimes the narration is all muttered to another companion what is taqwa and then he and, the, and then there's two stories the companion says imagine you have to walk through this forest of thorns you all know this and then all you have to protect yourself is a shroud and so what do you do is you go through the forest of thorns you bring the, the shroud close to yourself and you make it through without getting pricked and that act of bringing the shroud close to yourself is taqwa or the other variation is that you're looking carefully at each step you're taking to get to the other side so that you don't fall into a trap or get pricked that uh cautiousness is taqwa or that consciousness is taqwa and so that's what we find in the primary sources so the primary sources will further include definitions will also include metaphors to help make sense of things like ayat al-bir gives this whole layout of what is bir and such and so then what we're saying is that the explanation for these answers what is essentially all of this is essentially what the islamic sciences are all about the goal of the islamic sciences is to find the answers to these questions using different methods tafsir study of hadith theology law so forth and so on in terms of what is most relevant okay let's stop right here <clears throat> and then we'll start next time with good heavens euthyphro and and so the question to think about further is in this context how does bir apply or does gia or taqwa in this scenario is in our discussions we looked at it through more through the lens of justice And this is going to be the, the the bulk of the conversation, trying to figure out, Socrates is going to be talking to Euthyphro to determine what exactly is pious, what is impious. Okay. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Alrighty. If there are none, then we will, inshallah, continue next week. I apologize for, for being late, but I'm also thankful to Fezan to texting me because I probably just sat there at my my chair as I was thinking hmm, I was in a hurry for something I don't remember what it was. Right, may Allah reward you all, inshallah, and we will continue, inshallah, next week. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Stay righteous, everyone. Yes. I don't even know how to turn this off. Yeah, how do I turn this off? Oh, there it is. Okay. I don't know. Okay.